This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. It's a big weekend for Colorado's Republicans. Presidential hopeful Ted Cruz speaks at their state convention on Saturday. It'll be the first time a GOP presidential candidate addresses a state convention here since Ronald Reagan in 1976. The other campaigns are sending high-level surrogates. They're trying to get their supporters into Colorado's delegation to the Republican National Convention in July. We're going to seek to understand this all better with CPR's Megan Verlee. Hi, Megan. Hi, Ryan. Why is this state convention so important in this larger process? It's because Colorado is in a really unusual situation here. In most states, uh, which candidates their RNC delegates support is just based on the outcome of a primary or straw poll, so there's not a lot in doubt. Colorado Republicans haven't polled their members. That means that whichever campaign can get its people elected into the delegate slots will effectively win Colorado. And it's important because the national Republican race is looking increasingly like it will end in a brokered convention and every delegate could count. When the Republicans caucused in Colorado, there was a lot of disappointment that there wasn't an official taking of people's uh, sort of presidential temperature. And that's proving to actually be quite beneficial later in the process, given how this race is shaping up. Certainly, if you're looking to the amount of clout that the race has, it's beneficial. I think there are still a lot of rank and file Republicans who are frustrated. Mm. How are delegates selected? It all happens at the state and congressional district assemblies. The congressional district one started last weekend. The state one will be on Saturday. And on Saturday, those state uh, convention goers will select 13 delegates. The congressional districts each get three for another 21 in total. It's a lot of math right there. Yes. Uh, and there are also three slots for party leaders, but they traditionally go unbound. So I'm not actually even going to really bother talking about them. Okay. When it comes to the state delegates, they'll be chosen by around 4,000 people attending the state convention on Saturday. Each of those attendees gets a ballot with around 600 names on it. And those 600 people each get 10 seconds on stage to make their case. And then the attendees vote. And the top vote getters go to the convention either as a delegate or as an alternate. So 600 candidates, 10 second speeches. I'm not sure what that sounds like. How is anyone supposed to pick, even keep track of all of them? Well, the the voters will get some help. The campaigns have been working for the past few weeks to construct slates of preferred delegates. Uh, there will definitely be people on the floor handing out lists of who to vote for if you support Ted Cruz. And there will probably also be people handing out slates for Donald Trump and John Kasich. I was talking about this with former state Senator Greg Brophy. He's a Republican from the Eastern Plains. And he explained that the campaigns are really looking for two things as they put together these slates. What you want to do is identify the people that will commit for your candidate who have the highest name ID amongst regular participants. So a former state legislator or a current state legislator or a longtime activist who's really, you know, prolific on Facebook or or something like that. And we've seen that already with the Cruz slates, which have been published. Secretary of State Wayne Williams is a candidate. A former Secretary of State Scott Gessler uh, will be representing his congressional district as a, as a Cruz delegate. And there are a lot of state lawmakers and former state lawmakers on there as well. OK, we've mostly been focused on the state convention. But as you said, there are these congressional district meetings to select delegates as well. Two of those happened last week and their slots all went to Cruz supporters. Mm-hmm. Is that an indication of how the rest of the delegates' selections may go? I think a lot of people think it is. Uh, There's several big reasons why Cruz is likely to do well in this process. One is that his campaign has been organizing here for months to get his supporters through the complicated system to to vote for RNC delegates. That's much earlier than anyone tells me they've heard from the Trump or, or Kasich campaigns. 
And another reason, according to Senator Brophy, is just that Cruz is a natural fit with the party faithful who participate in this process. The average assembly attendee in Colorado is a conservative. So Cruz, of all the people left in the race, Cruz is their natural guy. And there is one final thing in Cruz's favor, which I don't think has been covered much. And that is that there's a very active fight for the Republican U.S. Senate nomination going on. And that might actually be helping him. How so? Well, there's a big field of Republicans out there who want to challenge Democrat Michael Bennett in November. And at the state convention, attendees will vote on some of the candidates who will make it onto the primary ballot in June. State Senator Tim Neville has been working very hard to excel at that process. And politically, he's very similar to Cruz. So a lot of the people I've been talking to, the political observers, say that all of Neville's effort to get his supporters to the state convention is likely to have a beneficial spillover effect for Cruz. There was a lot of talk over the weekend um, uh, and I guess last week as well about Donald Trump attending the assemblies. But he's he's not going to. What, no. what do you make of that? Well, uh, you're absolutely right that there were a lot of rumors swirling about whether he'd come here so much that it felt sort of like Trump Watch 2016. Uh, you had reporters saying they'd heard that law enforcement was canceling days off to, to cover rallies on different days in different places. And then so far, it seems like nothing has come of that. I think the fact that he decided to skip the state does make you wonder if he's tacitly conceding it to Cruz. Uh, you know, Cruz has been very successful in other caucus states so far, and Trump has been very vocal about criticizing the caucus system, saying that it it subverts the popular will to political machinations. Uh, it's true that one thing that you are reminded of as or at least I'm reminded of as I follow this process is that political parties are private membership organizations. This isn't sort of pure government run democracy. These are groups that are free to set their rules and conduct their business how they like. We are speaking with CPR's Megan Verlee. You mentioned the U.S. Senate race here. There are more than a dozen people running. How important is this weekend for them on the GOP side? Well, it's interesting. For half of them, it doesn't mean a lot, and I'll tell you why in a minute. But for half of them, or for a bunch of them, it's crucial. Uh, It takes support from 30 percent or more of the state assembly goers to get on the primary ballot. And four of the top tier candidates are betting on that route. Aside from State Senator uh, Tim Neville, there are two El Paso County commissioners and also a longtime Republican activist and businessman, Jerry Natividad. And if any of them fall short of the 30 percent threshold, they're out of the running. Oh. But the convention isn't the only route. You can also petition onto the ballot, and a bunch of the hopefuls have taken that route. They turned in petitions last week. We're still waiting to see how many had enough signatures to, to reach the threshold. They include former uh, State Representative John Kaiser, who's generally considered to be sort of the establishment favorite, as well as former Aurora City Councilman Ryan Frazier. Megan, before we leave this, we should also mention that the Democrats have their convention the following weekend that's taking place in London. Loveland. And what's at stake there? Well, in one sense, a lot less because the delegate allocation will be made based on the the caucus night straw poll, which, as you probably remember, uh, Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders won. However, I think this will become another venue to talk about frustration over the superdelegates. The the Sanders side, of course, very frustrated that most of Colorado's superdelegates are pledged to Hillary Clinton. Thanks, Megan. Thank you, Ryan. CPR's Megan Verlee covers state politics and more for us, and she will cover this weekend's events. You can follow her on Twitter at CPR Verlee for the latest. And at CPRnews.org, there is a detailed breakdown of the GOP delegate selection process. And we'll be right back with a little slice of Mars right here on Earth. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. 
This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Today, we speak with a man who is pretending to live on Mars for a year. And to keep things authentic, N.J. Stewart couldn't talk to me in real time. You see, if he were on Mars, there would be a 20-minute delay because of the distance. We last spoke with Stewart seven months ago. He was about to leave his job in space operations at Lockheed Martin in Littleton to meet the other NASA crew members who are a part of this Martian simulation. They are all now in a solar-powered dome on the island of Hawaii, helping the U.S. figure out what a manned mission to Mars would look like. Because of the communication issue, we emailed Stewart our questions, he recorded his answers, and sent them to us. Anjay Stewart says this dome is on the side of the Mauna Loa volcano. We're in an abandoned quarry, and it's also a very sort of barren and desolate place. Not very many plants, very few animals. And in that way, it helps us to really imagine that we're on the surface of Mars, somewhere very distant. The dome is about 1,200 square feet. There's a common area, kitchen, a computer room, all on the first floor, and he and his five crew members sleep on the second. They do get to go outside, but it is not as easy as walking out the door. They have to pass through a simulation airlock. So anytime we have to leave the dome, we go into the airlock, close all the doors, wait for five minutes to simulate a uh, depressurization. So going from the pressure of a habitat to the pressure outside, which on Mars would be a very thin atmosphere. We're also simulating sort of the geological activities that a real Mars crew would have to do as well. So we do get to go outside, always in simulated spacesuits. We don't get to go out just in our normal street clothes. And we get to do geological activities similar to what a Martian crew would have to do as well. Stewart says as people travel farther into space to places like Mars, NASA wants to better understand group dynamics, the idea that a successful mission depends on everyone getting along. The reason the habitat's here in the first place is to study psychological stressors of deep space missions, small team dynamics, crew interactions. And by selecting such an isolated site, by restricting the people that can come here, The only people I've seen in person over the last six months have been my five crewmates. Nobody else is allowed up here. We have a few people that can come up to do maintenance on the HAB if it's needed or to drop off supplies. But whenever they come, we have to close off the windows and put headphones in to make sure that we don't interact with them in any way. Stewart says NASA started with a big group of prospective crew members and winnowed it down based on who got along best. As for why he thinks he made the cut, it might have something to do with his upbringing. I was an only child, so like many only children, I uh, was very good at entertaining myself, at keeping myself busy whenever nobody was around. So that sort of way I got at least a few maybe introverted tendencies. But at the same time, my dad was uh, enlisted in the United States Air Force. And as part of that, you move from station to station a lot. And in order to be able to handle that, the term is military brats. We learn to be very resilient and be very outgoing just because every four years you have to go through the exercise of having to get a whole new group of friends. Even so, he says, this mission has tested him in ways he didn't expect. It's definitely an interesting experience having to live with five other people and not being able to see anybody else for a period of a whole year doesn't matter how well you like each other, sooner or later there's going to be some sort of disagreement, and you have to learn 
how to handle that disagreement. Um, it makes me at least um, feel lucky for when I get back to Earth. I think it's going to change how I view the world. Andre Stewart is married, and he knew he'd miss his wife and his friends, and they can email, but not being able to speak is hard. As you go on throughout the mission, you begin to realize how easy being able to talk to somebody face-to-face or being able to pick up a telephone and talk to somebody makes communication. Having to email, having to type your message, which takes a lot more time than just saying what you want, and then waiting the 20 minutes for it to get to the person, then waiting the 20 minutes for their response to come back, that makes communication very difficult. Um, So it takes a lot more effort just to be able to communicate with the people at home. And, you know, sometimes you get sort of anxious waiting for the messages to come back and just sort of looking forward to what the people at home have to uh, write to you. As for what he misses besides people? I miss being able to fly airplanes. I'm a pilot. And just the sensation of being airborne, the sensation of motion, being able to look down and see the whole world underneath you. I miss playing hockey. Yesterday, my hockey team I play for actually won their league championship. So go Flyers. Way to go, guys. So I just kind of miss the everyday things from my life back in Colorado. And he still has months to go in that Hawaiian dome. But it's doing for him what it was designed to do. I believe, if needed, I would would be able to spend a long time on Mars or the isolation I would be involved going to an asteroid or whatever deep space destination that NASA eventually settles on. I've wanted to be an astronaut for a long time, but understanding that while you get to do cool things as an astronaut, you get to ride on rockets, you get to wear spacesuits, you get to float around in zero G, but understanding that there is a cloud to that silver lining as well, that astronauts get separated from their families for long periods of time, especially as our missions are looking farther and farther into the solar system. That is Andre Stewart of Jefferson County. He sent us his answers to questions we posed from NASA's Mars simulator in Hawaii. And he'll join us in our more earthly studio when the mission is over. Uh, Again, this is a recording for Colorado Public Radio. Thank you very much. Now a sneak peek at our interview with Denver band The Lumineers, which airs in full on Monday. Their new album is called Cleopatra, and it has a really rich sound. The band's co-founders, Wesley Schultz and Jeremiah Freights, told me that this big sound is not a result of a lot of post-production tricks. I think there was an onus put on what sounds were going into the mic, not what we could do with them once they were recorded. So a lot of time was spent, like scientists, testing out different amps until we got the one. I tried six or seven different vocal mics before we settled on the one that was this weird Russian mic. And I think... Putting an onus on that means it's kind of less work at the end of the day, but it also sounds better because you're not in post putting all these effects on things and trying to give them steroids. They're already sounding big uh, naturally. It's a weird Russian mic. Is it Soviet? It's I don't not think old. it's that old. Okay, okay. Yeah. No, it's it's this white Russian mic that I probably couldn't pronounce uh, that just happened to sound good when I would sing on it versus the other ones. Angela, on my knee. Oh, my love. Oh, my love. 
hearing the track Angela, and you'll hear more from the Lumineers on Monday's show. Also coming up soon, we welcome back an expert in gardening. Larry Stebbins will answer your questions as you prep for the season, whether you need advice on grass or soil or what kinds of carrots grow well in Colorado. Reach out to us on Twitter, at Colorado Matters, or email news at CPR.org. That's news at CPR.org. And we'll be right back. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. There is a movement in education to get more movement into education. The Girls Athletic Leadership Charter School in Denver, known as GALS, is an example of this. It is all girls, and a student might be asked to run down the hall in the middle of math class as part of the lesson. Well, now educators there want to try it with boys pending approval from Denver Public Schools. Nick Jackson is a language arts teacher at GALS, and he would become head of school at this new boys charter school. It would open in 2017 with sixth grade and add a class every year until it's also a high school. Welcome to the program. Glad to be here. So at GALS, the students' first class is typically something like yoga or circuit training. And then, as we said, exercise is part of, you know, math or English lessons. Why uh, that emphasis? We understand that uh, as adolescents, their their bodies, their brains don't necessarily wake up until around 10 a.m. Uh, unless you kickstart it with some movement. And so our first class every single day at GALS, as will be true at the boys' school, is a movement class. And as you mentioned, it's, it's either circuit training or running or yoga or team sports. And it builds a really strong sense at GALS of sisterhood, of teamwork, of bonding. Uh, and the same will be true at the boys' school, where they have this time together to push one another. And then there is movement integrated into those later classes. So yeah. I suppose that's less about waking up and more about what? Uh, more about making sure they're staying engaged, staying focused. And why does movement the gateway to that? You know, it gets, I think it's true for anybody. Uh, the longer you sit, it's harder to focus. And so kind of a general rule of thumb is we don't teach with students sitting in their desks for longer than about 20 minutes at a time. And students might not be sitting anyway. They might be at a standing desk. Uh, we have some stationary bikes that students ride. So you might walk into class and students are taking notes on a stationary bike. Uh, we have yoga balls as chairs. And so students are bouncing. And if you're in our school, you can really see that that increases their engagement. Um, and yet I can imagine some of that being distracting. In other words, if you are focusing on that movement and getting up and sitting back down. I think about those times in the day when I'm interrupted at my desk, you know, mm -hmm. and then I've got to pick a project back up and resume it. Mm -hmm. And what's nice about our school is we have so much professional development for our teachers on how to incorporate movement in the classroom. And so it's not, you know, students taking this brain break and then trying to get back on track on their own. They have a teacher at the front of the classroom who helps get them refocused. And I can speak as a teacher who's been there for two years. I teach sixth grade language arts. Uh, yeah, can, give me an example from your classroom. It looks very different in a lot of different ways. So one way is we have uh, brain breaks, which is simply, you know, we've been teaching for a while. Students have been taking notes or reading or doing whatever. And they just simply need a three-minute brain break. So what that could look like is... All right, everyone pause where you are in your books. Let's go outside. Let's do a really quick game for three minutes, and then we're back inside and refocused. Teaching there, I see them go out, take that brain break. They come back in, and they are refocused, re-energized immediately. 
Another way movement is used is it's actually incorporated into the lessons. So, uh, for example, in language arts, I mean, right now we're tackling a Hamlet unit. So we're reading Hamlet. Every single day, we're up, we're acting in class. Uh, another as, way it's, As the characters? As the characters, yep. We also, another example I can think of is... Uh, we were learning parts of speech earlier this year. Um, How to diagram a sentence. <laughs> diagramming sentence, uh, incorporating parts of speech, yeah. So we have a movement tied to similes. Uh, similes are comparisons using like or as. So the movement to demonstrate that, uh, we have two students sitting on the ground back to back, comparison between two things, so two people. Uh, their arms stand for the words like and as, and they link arms back to back sitting on the ground, and we try and stand up pushing against each other. Uh, and doing that movement to show what a simile would look like in human form helps them remember what a simile is. So we have gotten our minds around this very kinetic environment. Why mm-hmm. make it all girls and in the case of the school that you'd like to get a charter for all boys? Right. What I've seen at this school is girls able to take risks that they normally wouldn't be able to take as easily if the classroom was full of boys. Uh, and you go speak to any of our students and they'll say, you know, I'm glad boys aren't here because I'm able to open up a little more easily. They feel more comfortable uh, in their own skin, especially in those middle school years. I mean, does this boil down to, uh, for those, I guess, with opposite sex attraction, I don't want to have the fear or the nervousness of the opposite sex around me? It could be different for different kids. Um, I know thinking about the boys' school, by just having boys in the classroom, uh, you kind of eliminate boys' temptation to fall into the boy code. So you'll get boys who think that caring is not cool. Um, many times the boys will be in the back of the classroom uh, not engaged because, you know, it, it's not cool to be engaged. It's not cool to be smart. Oftentimes they're playing into those stereotypes because girls are around. Or you'll get boys who play into the fact that it, it's not cool for boys to be good readers or be good writers um, because that's a feminine quality. That's a girly thing. If you take girls out of the equation, now you have boys who are more open to try those things. Boys who are more open to trying things like uh, like music, like performance. You don't have any data about college attendance yet, and that's because there aren't uh, graduates yet from GALS. Correct. Uh, that will happen in, in a number of years Yep, in a couple still. of years. But according to the Park test scores, the state tests in math and English from last year, GALS results are on par with state averages in the sixth grade then exceed state averages in 7th and 8th grades. Mm -hmm. In an article from 2012 from Chalkbeat, Colorado, uh, it was noted that GALS has 65% minority students. Does that percentage remain roughly the same today? Yeah, we're we're a really diverse school. Um, Because we're so centrally located, we get girls from all over the city of Denver. And so you're achieving these results not just with wealthy, privileged white kids yep, is, we, is we what have you're it. saying Thanks. there. Yep. Uh, you know, the ACLU opposes single-gender schools, mm. saying that they divert resources from initiatives that would improve the education of both genders. And they say that uh, these environments deprive students of, uh, quote, important preparation for the real co-educational worlds of work and family. And I'd like you to address this on, on two points. One is, are you preparing students for a world that has both genders operating and a world in which 
it may not be appropriate to jump up and, and exercise, you know, in the middle of a meeting or something. <laughs> <laughs> so what's wonderful about the creation of the boys' school is we're building on the success of GALS, the six years that GALS has been around. And, and so now we will have the girls' school and we'll have the boys' school. What head of school over at GALS, Nina Safane, and I envision is overlap where we see necessary. Uh, so we have community meetings every single Wednesday with our students and faculty. We see overlap where we'll join schools. So that it's not purely a one-gender environment. Right. So has that been a weakness of GALS, the, the, that kind of isolation? I don't see it as a weakness. No, not at all. And yet you want to change it. No, not change, but add on to. Uh, this is all going under the umbrella of the GALS network. Uh, this is what we envision as uh, creating these schools, this equal opportunity for both boys and girls. And, and to this idea that it, it fails to prepare them for a world that is not single sex, mm-hmm. what do you say? Um, you know, we've had the chance to visit a number of all-boys schools around the country as we start to prepare, one being the Barack Obama Male Leadership Academy down in Dallas. Uh, and we got a wonderful tour from a senior there. And I asked the senior, I said, well, don't you miss having girls around? You're a senior in high school. Wouldn't you like to have girls around? And he said, no, are you kidding me? After school gets out, the girls come to me because I'm more in tune with who I am. And so they want to be around the boys who go to our school and not the boys that are, that are at their schools um, because we're turning out to be these more well-rounded human beings, these, these gentlemen. And to this idea of the environments in business, for instance, or higher education, where leaping up is not smiled upon, mm-hmm. you know. Right. I, I mean, I know as uh, as a teacher, I'm in my eighth year of teaching right now, movement for me is is really important. And I know that I need those breaks. And I think everybody uh, would agree, too, that, you know, we can't sit for hours and hours and hours for us to be as productive as we can be and as happy as we can be. There needs to be time for us to to rest our brains, uh, to move our bodies. Uh, so is to, it that you want them to be agents of change to say in those other environments, it's okay to do something like this? I think that would be wonderful. Uh-huh. And of course, in, in some work environments, we're seeing this with standing desks, and mm-hmm. treadmill desks. Mm-hmm. And Absolutely. So who doesn't this type of school work for? Uh, you know, we've had... We were just looking at the the students who've left GALS. And unfortunately, the girls who leave GALS, it's it's just because of transportation issues. So unfortunately, uh, we don't have a bus system that can bring girls to our school. And, and obviously, the most, uh, the biggest differences about our school outwardly are the fact that we're single gender and the fact that we move. But I think what gets overlooked and what we, what really sets us apart is the fact that um, our students know who they are. We really spend time fostering that culture of belonging where, where students are able to figure out who they are and what their place is in this world. And that really adds to our joy factor. Are there bullies? Absolutely. Yep, there are bullies just as there are in every school. We take time to address that. Thanks for being with us. You're welcome. Thank you. Nick Jackson would lead an all-boys school in Denver if it wins charter approval. Debt is a reality for many college students. More than half of them leave school owing around $25,000. To avoid that, Americans are increasingly turning to Germany. 
This year, 100 students from Colorado are taking the German language college entrance test. It's the first step towards entering one of that country's tuition-free universities. CPR education reporter Jenny Brundine has more. After a tough day at Cherry Creek High School, Claire Becker likes to go home and watch German television. Because I'm very taken with the language. Claire is also frugal. When she heard she could attend a university in Germany... Without being buried in crippling financial debt. (laughs) She leapt at the chance. That's because tuition in Germany is free, not just for Germans, but foreign students as well, who make up about 10% of the country's student body. The faces that I see say, I don't believe you, there must be strings attached. That's Stefan Biedermann, Germany's deputy consul general in Los Angeles. He says it won't all be easy, though. I mean, learning German is really a challenge, I know that. Ask your kids, German grammar is hell. Tonight, Biedermann is talking to a room full of parents and students in a Greenwood Village classroom. Some have driven two and a half hours for this night. They're welcomed with bags of swag, maps of Germany, books, pamphlets, stickers, and pens. The abitur um, requirements. So far as Prospective student Claire Becker is asking questions tonight. She double-checks that her honors course load is on track to enter a German university. It's had four units of English, which makes sense. Once Claire passes a German language test, it's the GPA that will make or break it for her. Eventually on this evening, Deputy Consul General Biedermann gets the question he's always asked. This quote-unquote free education isn't cheap, funded by German taxpayers. Why are they willing to foot the bill for everyone? We think everybody has the right to get a decent education. And in Germany, people ask a lot from the government. And for them, it's quite normal that the government pays for education. And it should not be a question of the income of the parents. Biedermann says Americans contribute to the intellectual diversity of German campuses. And when Americans return to the U.S., they become citizen ambassadors for Germany. And there are other pressing reasons. Germany's population is aging, and it's facing an estimated labor shortage of one million workers by 2020. That's why German universities are very interested in getting more people from all over the world to study in Germany. That's Honey Geist. She's with the German national agency that fosters international National academic cooperation. The idea is to also have them contribute then to the German workforce and German research. That appeals to Cherry Creek High senior Hannah Keller. You can't get the same experience anywhere else. Keller has already been accepted into a dualish studium. Keller will work at SAP, one of the largest business software companies in the world, headquartered in Germany, and study international business the other half of the time. Keller wants a break from what she calls the ranking-obsessed American college culture. She believes Germany will be different. There, they focus more on the experience, and I want to get more of that. I want to get away from the expectation that you're just doing it to build your resume or to impress other people. You get to see a different way in which people live. You get to see different perspectives. It's a special kind of student who will study across the pond, says Jay Malone, The 31-year-old American went to college in Germany himself and now runs a business that helps students make the cultural shift from the U.S. to Germany. He says three-quarters of students who contact him initially do so because they've read the tuition is free. But he says... If you're the kind of student who is only concerned about cost, then you're not going to be likely to thrive in an environment, in an educational environment like Germany's. 
He says students have to be self-motivated and adventurous. They don't live on campus. They find their own housing in the city. There are no fancy gyms and rock walls. There is not as much hand-holding. Advisors ready to catch you if you stumble. I have a feel chilled. Claire Becker recognizes that the leap from watching German comedies on her laptop to studying at a university in Berlin or Munich is a big one. In some ways, it's kind of scary, but in some ways... It's really encouraging that I can just be my own person and I have to sink or swim and I get the feeling that I'm going to swim. I'm Jenny Brendine, Colorado Public Radio News. And you can learn more about getting a degree in Germany and in other countries for free or nearly free at cprnews.org. Ich hab noch einen in Berlin. Deswegen muss ich nächstens wieder hin, die Seligkeiten vergangene Zeiten sind alle noch in meinem kleinen Koffer drin. Coming up, a video love letter to Colorado's national parks. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Filmmaker Chris Wheeler has made a love letter to Colorado's national parks. His documentary, Heart of the World, airs tonight on Rocky Mountain PBS. It is narrated by country singer Kathy Matea. They are five of the most amazing and diverse national parks in the world. The opening shots give us panoramic views of Colorado's national parks, and then we encounter a visitor at one who is clearly moved by what he's seeing. When I see things like this, I'm really glad to be alive. It's remarkable, Chris Wheeler, how many people well up with tears in this film when they talk about the beauty of some of these parks. Welcome to the program. Thank you. I I think that's a testament of the power of these places. And I think in the film, that's one of the we wanted to tell the story of the parks, of course. But I think we also wanted to show just the, you know, the immense power and, and amazing effect these these places have on human beings. So Colorado actually has four official national parks, Black Canyon of the Gunnison, Great Sand Dunes, Mesa Verde, and Rocky Mountain. And you add to this the Colorado National Monument. Why, why make a film about these places, which are, you know, some of the most visited spots already in Colorado? Is it that there's a lot we, we can still learn? Well, I think one of the reasons is this is the 100-year anniversary of the National Park Service, so that was one reason to do it now. But um, it's a timeless story. I think, um, like many Coloradans, I love the place that I live. And uh, I had an opportunity and to tell the story of what I think are the very best, what's the best of Colorado. It's, it's national parks. So um, that's that's the reason that we decided to make the film. I think that... Um, the thing that struck me more than anything, though, is the diversity of these these places. These five parks are amazingly diverse. They're also incredibly different. I don't think there's another state in the country that can boast the diverse national parks that Colorado does. Yeah, and you do this contrast, you know, the, the, the contrasts between the sand dunes, for instance, and Rocky Mountain National Park and what different kinds of landscapes those are. I want to note that you did m- much of the work for this project uh, you, by yourself, with no real production team. 
Well, that's true. I I was just coming off of a of a project that was massive. It was on the American Civil War, and that was very much a film about death and chaos and war. And you know, I thought it would really be great to to do something maybe more more solo that was on really looked at life and peace rather than war. And uh, so it was very therapeutic, I guess, in a way to get out to these amazing places and to be by myself. I actually enjoyed the solitude. There are just beautiful images captured in this film. Uh, sometimes it, they just look like beautiful nature photography, um, almost stills. I have this sense that like, I don't know, Ansel Adams, you probably waited for just the right light, just the right moment at a particular park, you know, to to catch the the light at the sand dunes or dusk at Rocky Mountain. Absolutely, I think really the the key parts, the the key times to do that I did most of the filming was at dawn and dusk. That's when light, the light is often the golden it, hour. Exactly, it's when light is most dramatic. Um, so those are the times that you you focus on, but. A lot of it is just showing up. A lot of it is just coming and being there and uh, being being fortunate enough to get, you know, something that you would never anticipate, a change in the weather. I would always, you know, when I was planning these trips, I was always hoping for a day like today, a beautiful, sunny, blue sky day. And those are great to shoot in. But when it, we got into the edit room, really the shots that we ended up using were the days where it wasn't, you know, beautiful. It was, But the days it was dramatic the change of uh, of change of the weather we also focused on really trying to capture the part the personality of these parks through the seasons because that's very much a story of the parks is seeing them through all the seasons well let's talk about the parks themselves their personalities as you say um why don't we start with rocky mountain national park biggest surprise for you there well i don't know if it's a surprise but it's just how incredibly rugged that place is and uh there are so many different facets to the park, from being uh, down in the valleys to being in the alpine country. Um, there was really no surprises, but it w- I will tell you, it was probably the most difficult place that I, of all the parks that I had to shoot, just because of just the rugged nature. We had to do a lot of hiking, and you're just um, exposed to a lot of uh, you know external factors. I mean, wind, when you get above treeline, the wind could be whipping. I, I think there were times where I was probably in the midst of... 70 mile an hour winds. It's very hard to to do filming in those conditions. But on the other hand, that is a part of that park's story. So that's what we tried to capture. Or the lightning, for instance, which has proved deadly in that park, something you have to certainly watch for above treeline. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, it's that fine line. You want to capture the drama yeah, right, or the weather that. change, but, you know, you're standing up up there with a tripod and a camera above treeline is probably not the smartest thing to do during a storm. Okay, to Black Canyon of the Gunnison and a moment that puts history in some pretty amazing perspective. There's a scene where people are outside at night and uh, you bring up an image of the Andromeda galaxy, 2.5 million light years away. And why don't we hear from the film a member of the Rocky Mountain Astronomical Society explain why Andromeda matters. The Andromeda galaxy is kind of a special object for me in this park because the light we we will see tonight from the Andromeda galaxy started on its way to us at about the same time that the major erosion was taking place here at Black Canyon of the Gunnison National Park. What a gorgeous way to link time. What do you remember thinking when you heard that? 
I think it just took me a while to get my head around what he what he said. Yeah. But once you get your head around it, it's to me it was it was really one of these defining moments of the series to think of that fact and how amazing that fact is, you know, his statement and the fact that you can you're seeing this light that began its journey two and a half million years ago when the the canyon was being formed. You know, all of a sudden time takes on new meaning when when you hear something like that. I want to note that uh, Black Canyon of the Gunnison is the first international dark sky certified park. Uh, that is to say, they have taken very careful steps to preserve the starry night sky and not have a lot of light pollution. I suppose you really felt that when you were there. Absolutely. But, you know, the Black Canyon has great night skies, but all the all the parks do. And that part of our film, I think, was to try to capture the night skies um, at all of the national parks. A bit of historical trivia about Black Canyon as well. The explorers who were the first to make it down the Gunnison River through the park chose an unusual means of transportation. What was it? Well, they it was uh, innovative at the time. It was rubber rafts. But this comes on the heels of actually trying to take wooden boats down to Black Canyon, which by you know today sounds crazy, but that was the only technology that they had. That's all they knew. And these guys were like astronauts in the in 1900s. They were going into the unknown, much like astronauts do today. But it was innovative that someone came up with the idea of what they called um, inflatable mattresses. And using those, they were actually able to navigate uh, the Gunnison River and get through the canyons, the first humans to do it. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we are speaking with filmmaker Chris Wheeler, whose documentary in several parts is called Heart of the World. And it is a celebration, a meditation on Colorado's national parks, and uh, also on the Colorado National Monument. Do you have an agenda there? Are you hoping to to make it a park? That's been in the discussion. It certainly has been. I, I don't have an agenda other than it. To me, it's it's an incredibly beautiful place. The Red Rocks there. Yeah, I think it, and I think it's deserving. It's. I've been to many national parks, filmed in many national parks, and Colorado National Monument is as beautiful as any national park I've ever been in. I also felt that it was really important to when we were telling the story. Through these parks, we're still telling the story of Colorado, and I think the, the story of Colorado would it be incomplete if we did not tell a, a, the story of a park that focuses on the geology of the Colorado Plateau. Yeah, I learned from the film that what gives that red rock its redness is hematite, Yeah, ab- mineral. Absolutely. So mm-hmm. it's and erosion is a, is a huge story there too. It's it's unlike um, any other park in Colorado, national park in Colorado. And I think as a filmmaker, what appealed to me was uh, if you look at the the images of that park, you would swear you're in Utah. But no, you are in, indeed in Colorado. You talk about the forces that shape these parks, and that leads rather naturally to the great sand dunes. Um, as someone says in the documentary, wind in particular is your bread and butter there. Absolutely. You know, the sand dunes is one of those places that it does look like a mirage. When you're approaching from the south, you cannot believe that. But wind is a tremendous force that um, shaped the dunes. But also, as we point out, and this is the irony of um, it's water that also plays a huge role in shaping and maintaining the dunes. So it's the irony of this place that looks very desert-like, very Sahara-like, really depending on water to exist. You speak to people in the film who describe the sand dunes as just totally unexpected because, of course, they're they're alpine environments right around it and, you know, evergreen trees. And the last thing you expect to see 
are dunes. That's 30 square miles of them. Absolutely. I think out of the five parks, the, the dunes is the one that evokes the biggest reaction amongst visitors. People people are giddy when they're on the dunes because they can hardly believe what they're seeing. Yeah, someone says, I feel like a kid again in your film as she slides down the sand. What? Uh, so natural forces shaped many of the parks we've talked about, but of course Mesa Verde National Park is one in which in which human forces have really been the the shapers, and that's what makes this that uh, story unique uh, in Colorado and in our film. It's it's very much a cultural story, but you can't look at it simply through call it a cultural story. It's really it's it's this convergence of cultural history and natural history. And the wonder of that park is the way that human beings adapted and lived in these cliff dwellings. And it's it's a timeless story that uh, you know people to this day are, are mesmerized by. It's a world heritage site. It's a very special place with the ancestral pueblans who lived there. Do you have a favorite park? Pick a child for us, will you? I would have to say I, I love all the parks. I love filming in Colorado National Monument and all of the the parks. But um, Rocky is a national park for a great reason. It's it's magnificent. It embodies everything that you think of in, as a national park and in the Rocky Mountains. Um, you could spend an, an entire lifetime exploring that park and, and not even get through most of it. There are still places in that park you haven't discovered, you haven't been to. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And there's there's people that, that know the park much better than I that uh, they've devoted their lifetime to hiking and, and they will not see it all. It's, it's a magnificent place. Thanks for being with us. Thank you. Chris Wheeler produced Heart of the World, Colorado's National Parks. So the first two parts air tonight at 8 on Rocky Mountain PBS, and then the third airs next Thursday, same time, same channel. And the whole thing will air on Colorado Public Television, Channel 12 as well. That's next Wednesday evening. All this information, and there's a link to a trailer as well at cprnews.org. And uh, now, another kind of love letter to Colorado. It comes from one of the most famous country singers of all time. As you may know, Merle Haggard died yesterday on his 79th birthday. Haggard lived in California and toured relentlessly into his old age with plenty of shows here in Colorado. And he spent even more time in this state in his mind, according to the lyrics of a song from 1976, when Colorado turned 100. It is simply called Colorado. There's a place where Mother Nature's Got it all together She knows just when to let wildflowers bloom Somehow she always seems to know Exactly what she's doing And the Lord saw fit to furnish elbow room Have you ever been down to Colorado? I spend a lot of time there in my God 
Colorado I'll bet that's where he spends most of his time Merle Haggard performing his song Colorado Haggard died yesterday I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.